back in the 1960s, just before half of you were born, but in any case, back in not you, Ron, I know. <laughs> back in the 1960s, there was a television show, and it was entitled, if I remember this correctly, Time Tunnel. Time Tunnel. Again, some affirming nods out there. That's good. That means that you, like I, spent entirely too much time in front of the television growing up. But Time Tunnel was that show where each and every week they got into this uh, contraption, right? And they would go back in time to some important historical event and then they would participate in it. And, of course, they would be going to mess up history if they didn't rescue themselves at the last second. But I've often thought it would be really fun to be able to do that. To go back in time to certain significant historical events and to be there as an observer. I don't want to participate in at least some of the events that I'd like to go to because then I wouldn't be here today. But anyway, just to go and to be able to observe significant battles, for example, or other events of world history would be something to see. Well, one of those events that I would go back if I were able to, would be the triumphal entry. It must have been exhilarating. For there, at that moment in time, as this prophet of, from Galilee you know, rides into the city down from the Mount of Olives with, with the cloak on the donkey's back and the, and the thronging multitudes are there and just pouring out their adoration for Him, strewing in front of Him their robes to pave the way for royalty, cutting these palm branches and laying them down in front of Him. And and just the excitement and enthusiasm of this particular event must have been something to behold. Surely now, the yoke of Roman oppression would be broken. If there was ever a time for the nation to be delivered from the times of the Gentiles, those first century Jews thought this must be it. We know that to be true because even amongst His disciples, they were jockeying for positions of, of authority and and. Um, and leadership within His coming kingdom. You remember even that uh, James and John, their mother came to Him right at this time you know, to, to ask that He might appoint to her two sons uh, the positions of authority on His right and His left. Everybody thought this was the moment. But all was not well beneath the surface. The leadership of Israel that resided there within the city of Jerusalem, the Sadducees that controlled the Temple Mount and all of the various franchise operations that went on there to support the sacrificial system, they were determined to put an end to this messianic fever. They had said themselves through the mouth of Caiaphas, the high priest, that if we don't do something about this, the Romans are going to come and they're going to take away our position. They're going to just sweep us from power. So this pretender must go. 
But not only the Sadducees, the scribes, that is, the teachers of law among the people, the professional legal class, as well as the Pharisees, which were a, uh, a lay organization of, of uh, religious leaders, about 6,000 strong, they too were in violent opposition. And the fascinating thing is, is that the Sadducees and the Pharisees you know, hated one another and were constantly at each other's throats. But there was one thing they could agree about, and that was that this prophet has to go. See, Jesus had spent a good part of his public ministry there out in the suburbs, if you will, out in the countryside of Israel, and that was that was the domain of the Pharisees. They were the ones that controlled the synagogues. And so as Jesus came and taught in their synagogues and consistently and constantly exposed their hypocrisy, they were angered. He had to go. For months, Jesus had been warning His close followers to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. You see, His disciples thought that this messianic train was going to roll all the way into the station. He was gathering up followers through these incredible acts of power. He was drawing people to Himself. I mean, this man fed 5,000 plus, we think perhaps as many as 20,000 people out of what amounted to a little boy's lunch. This man raised someone who had been dead for three days. He raised him from the dead. This man could give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, restore withered limbs, loosen deaf tongues. This man would deliver his people from Rome. And so everyone in his inner circle were convinced that this was it. This entry into the city would be that climactic moment. And yet Jesus said, beware of the leaven, the scribes, and the Pharisees. It seems like nothing could derail the messianic train. Yet by Friday, the same adoring crowds are screaming for His blood. Crucify Him, they said. Crucify Him. We have no King but Caesar. That brings us to an incredibly serious question. Given Sunday, given all of the passion and excitement and promise and hope of Sunday. Why Friday? Why Friday? Why did they turn on Him and kill Him? What happened? Well, the answer to this question is Monday and Tuesday. Given Sunday, why Friday? The answer is Monday and Tuesday. The events of those two days of the Passion Week turned the adoring crowds into a murderous mob. 
I would love to go through the events of those days with you in detail, but we have not the time for that. So instead, what we are going to do is just focus on one particular incident that occurred during that time period, and that will represent the greater events of, that, of those two days, and we'll answer this most serious question. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, if you're using a pew Bible, it'll be 984, page 984. Jesus is going to draw battle lines. He is going to force the crowds to make a choice. He is going to force them into the position of choosing Him or the Pharisees. And this morning, He's going to force us to make a choice too. For He is going to describe for us two different and opposing religious systems. Two religions, if you will. And He is going to force us to choose between those two. In the process of doing that, He will answer the question, Given Sunday, why Friday? Let me read the text for you. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to His disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men rabbi. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Two religions placed before us this morning. The same two religions that were placed before the nation of Israel 2,000 years ago. The first religion is the religion of self-exaltation. The religion of self-exaltation, and it is described for us here in verses 1 through 7. And it's described for us using three terms. The first is that the religion of self-exaltation is presumptuous. It is a religion that is presumptuous. And it comes to us in the verses 1 through the beginning of verse 3. Now, contextually, Jesus has silenced all of the leadership of the nation by this time. He has bested the Sadducees in open theological debate 
over the resurrection. And you remember the, uh, the case they put before him about the woman who was married and her husband died and she marries again and he dies and he marries again and he dies and on and on. And then he, they say to him, well, Jesus, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Thinking they had him in the perfect position of a theological dilemma he could not possibly extricate himself from, he put them to shame by telling them they knew not the Scriptures or the power of God. And he, using the Decalogue, using the book of Exodus, he explained to them the resurrection. So he put the Sadducees to silence. Then came the Pharisees and they too tried to trap him in various theological conundrums. But he Silence them as well. And there at the end of chapter 22 is sort of the culmination of all of that. They gather together and they ask in verse 41 a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, it says. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. He silenced the leadership of Israel. He closed their mouths. They had nothing to say to him. He has bested them in open debate. And so now he turns, verse 1, chapter 23, he turns to the crowds that have gathered. And you bet the crowds had gathered. Everybody likes a good argument. And so particular to see this young prophet who has no formal education within any of the officially recognized schools of Israel to best its leadership in open debate. You bet there were crowds. And they're gathered around and they're listening. They're intent upon all of this. And so he has now silenced the Pharisees. And so he turns to the crowds that are gathered there. Verse one, speaking to them and to his disciples. This is his final communication, by the way, to the nation of Israel. When he is done here in chapter 23, he will say to them that you will not hear from me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this is it. This is the final moments. These are the final statements to the nation of Israel. This is the moment of decision. No more talk after this. No more reasoning with them. No more arguments. It's now or never. And his challenge to them is to turn their political enthusiasm into a spiritual commitment. Turn their political enthusiasm into a spiritual commitment to Him as the Messiah that would then grant them access into His kingdom. Notice what he says in verse 2, speaking to the multitudes, but speaking about the Pharisees. He spoke to them saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Now, a little little background, a little context is helpful. In their culture... The authoritative teacher would sit to teach. I stand. I don't know why. I should have a chair here, right? But they, in their culture, they sat to teach. We stand. But he says to them here that that, uh, they have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. 
And what that means is there was a rabbinical expression that basically said that your successor would sit in your chair. And your authority would then pass to him. We, we use a similar expression. It's not common, but we do use it in our, in our culture. We talk about the chair of philosophy at such and such a university. So we use that kind of terminology as well. By the way, the, the Greek word here for seed is, is cathedra. And in the, uh, that passed over, by the way, into the Latin. And uh, we are told the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the chair. And when he speaks in that fashion, he supposedly speaks with doctrine that binds all Roman Catholics universally. So this terminology, this idea flows forward and through even into our own culture. But here Jesus says, the scribes, verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. What he means by that is, is that they have assumed the authority of the great lawgiver of Israel. You remember, Moses was the one who gave them the Decalogue, right? The first five books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses spoke authoritatively for God. He was God's mouthpiece to the nation at its birth. And so what he is saying here is they have seated themselves in his chair. That is, that they are saying they have taken to themselves his authority. The authority of Moses. They thus speak for God. And notice what he says. Therefore, verse 3 at the beginning, Therefore all that they tell you, do and observe. Now, this is, a, this is a difficult expression to interpret. It's difficult because on many prior occasions, Jesus had said just exactly the opposite. He had taught that the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees was corrupt and damning and it was not to be followed. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 48, Matthew 15, 3 to 11, just a couple of the examples where Jesus specifically says, don't follow what they teach. But here he has, he has spoken and, he, and he's done so grammatically in a very strongly worded statement. All that they tell you, do and observe. Well, this has led to many commentators to, uh, to understand this expression to have an implicit carve out. And it goes something like this. All that they tell you, parentheses, understood, which does not contra- uh, contradict the word of God, do and observe. And that's how many people interpret this expression here. The problem with that is that the text doesn't say that. You have, to, you have to assume that that was understood by everybody that was there. There's another possibility, though, here of what he's, he's actually doing. And uh, D.A. Carson uh, raises this possibility in his commentary on Matthew and the Expositor's Bible Commentary. And I think, I think Carson is on to something here. And what Carson says is at the beginning of verse uh, 3, therefore all that they tell you do and observe, is uh, Carson says this is irony. This is a biting irony actually bordering on sarcasm. Irony, by the way, is the use of words that convey the opposite you know, intent of what they say, the opposite meaning. So if you understand Jesus to be using irony here, then what he is saying is that the scribes and the Pharisees are not authoritative. They do not speak for God and you should not do what they tell you. Now, where does Carson get this uh, this notion? Well, without getting too bogged down in the in the details, it, it's it's built in the tense of the verb here in, in uh, the first clause in uh, chapter three. 
It is an aorist tense verb. So what? That just means point in time action. And uh, it's not a present tense verb, which means ongoing action. Um, most translations, English translations, translated though as a present tense. It says uh, they sit in the seat of Moses. That may be what your translation says this morning. The New American Standard, however, um, kind of breaks ranks with all the other major, major English translations. And it translates it here as they have seated themselves. I think the NASB is more correct in understanding what's going on here. What's being communicated, picking up this idea of irony. And so what Jesus is saying is he is actually delegitimizing their position. He's saying they have presumed to something that is not rightfully theirs. They have seated themselves. Literally, they have sat in the seat of Moses. So whether we understand it uh, that way or whether we understand it with a a carve out, uh, the the point remains that there is a presumption going on here. They do not speak for God. They do not speak for God. And nor can they add or alter his word. But beloved, that's the way the religion of self-exaltation always works. It is a presumptuous religion. It is a religion in which people presume to speak for God. How many times have you had somebody say to you, I know that God will accept me into heaven because I'm basically a good person. That is a presumptuous statement. Presuming to know the mind of God and to speak for Him. Or perhaps uh, this one. If I perform such and such ritual faithfully, if I'm, if I'm faithful to do these things, then God will accept me. Or if I do such and such and, uh, and avoid going to uh, certain places and I avoid certain behaviors, then God will be pleased with me and, and I will be more holy. These are statements of presumption. These are statements of the religion of self-exaltation. Beloved, these are lies. These are lies. And they are designed by men who seek to bind you into a system of works-based righteousness. That somehow you can earn favor with God. That if you do this and you don't do this, you go here and you don't go there, that God will be favorably inclined to you. Understand something. You are a sinner separated from God. You are defiled to the very depth of your being. Your acceptance before God is on the basis of only one thing. And that is the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ in your place. There is no other approach to God than that. His love for you can be no higher than His love for His own Son, Jesus Christ. It does not depend on what you do and don't do. God does not show partiality. He loves you because of Christ. So the religion of self-exaltation, it is a presumptuous religion. It is also, the end of verse 3 and end of verse 4, it is a hypocritical religion. It is presumptuous and it is Hypocritical. Verse 3, do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and they do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. 
The religion of self-exaltation is a hypocritical religion because it pretends to be righteous when in fact it is merely a whitewashed tomb full of dead man's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. You know, the Pharisees were experts at telling people what they must do while at the same time evading the real intent of the law of God. Look at verse 23, this same chapter. When Jesus turns back to the Pharisees and He begins to scald them. Verse 23, He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tied mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. They sought to avoid the real intent of the law while teaching that you must do this and you can't do that. They're also hypocritical in the sense that they they pretended to honor God by their rituals. While at the same time, they were building their own personal fiefdoms. Back in chapter 15, go ahead and turn back there, where Jesus addresses this very point with them. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, our laws? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, you're not just talking about you know, basic sanitation like your mom said, go wash your hands before dinner. He's talking about a ceremonial washing. Okay. He answered and said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And thus you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Basically what's going on is is they would teach people that you don't have to help your parents. All you got to do is devote these things to God and then you can continue to use them for your own benefit the rest of your life. It's a way to cheat God and at the same time appear pious. You hypocrites, he says. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They're building their own kingdom, but pretending to be building gods. Hypocrites. Beyond that, it says in verse 4, back in chapter 23, they tie up heavy loads. Uh, the picture here is that, is that they put together their, their various uh, laws and requirements like a man gathering firewood. And they bundle it together in a great big bundle like a heavy load of, of sticks. And then they stick it on somebody's shoulders and they say there, you know, be warm, be filled, be blessed and be out of here. It is their perverse interpretations of the details of the law, Jesus says, Luke eleven forty six, that constitute these heavy burdens. And they put them on people, and yet they refuse themselves to, to help at all in moving them. They will not move them themselves, nor will they reduce the weight upon people's shoulders. This is works-based righteousness. This is the religion of self-exaltation at its worst. How different this is from the religion Jesus offered. 
when He said, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My load is light. The religion of self-exaltation is presumptuous, it is hypocritical, and it is external. It is external, verses 5 through 7. It's all about the outside stuff, the stuff that can be seen by other people. Looking good on the outside, right? Styling for God when on the inside you are full of dead man's bones. We all desire to be praised, don't we? We all like it when someone comes to us and gives us a compliment, tells us, you know, that we're doing a good job, whatever. But, you know, there is uh, this desire for human praise is it can be an insidious thing. And particularly when it's associated or, or related to our religious attainments. There is pride can be ugly. In fact, pride is ugly, but it's it's uglier when it's spiritual pride. A deeply rooted desire to be thought godly. Notice here in uh, verse 5, that Jesus, uh, He says to them, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Everything they do is about who is going to see it. How do I look? Do I look holy? I look godly? You know, let me put on my godly clothes and carry my godly Bible and do my godly things and say my godly statements. So everybody will think I'm godly. Corruption. He charges them with two specific examples to prove his point here. Verse 5. They broaden their phylacteries, right? And they lengthen the tassels of their garments. What in the world's going on there? Well, phylacteries were, were these little leather boxes, about two inches square. And inside the leather box would be small strips of parchment containing portions of the Law of Moses. And they would fasten these things onto a leather strap, and they would wear them across their forehead, and on their upper left arm, so it would be near their heart, and on their left hand. This custom, by the way, originated about 400 B.C., during the intertestamental period. It is not known within, within Old Testament Judaism. I believe that it is actually a, 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 an over-literalization of Moses' command to them in Deuteronomy 6, where he says that the law of God is to be upon your, your heart, your head, and, you know, and your hands. That is, that it is to dominate your life. That's the point in Deuteronomy 6. But during the intertestamental period, when they had been excluded from the land because of their idolatry, this, this over-literalization came in. So they actually began to do this. You know, they strapped these things on themselves. You can still see this tradition among Orthodox Jews even today. The thing that Jesus is criticizing here is that whereas the first century Jew would typically just wear these during the morning prayers, he'd put them on during his morning uh, time for morning prayer, and then they'd come off. But the Pharisees, see, they wanted to be known as holy people. So they wear them around all the time. And not only would they just wear them around all the time, instead of a little thin strap, you know, to hold them on, they get a big fat one, you know? I remember when I was a kid, fat watch bands were in style. You remember that? 
You know, it wasn't good enough to just have a small watch band. You got, you know, you had like a six-inch leather watch band went up to your elbow. You know, so everybody could see that you had a watch. Well, that's what they did. They did. They would, you know, they get these big, wide leather things and strap them around their heads. You know, it was goofy. And they walk around with them on their arms, on their hands, across their head. Oh, what a holy man! What a holy man he must be! Look, look at the law right on him. The tassels of their garments, it says, they lengthen those. This is a direct command of God. Numbers fifteen thirty-eight to forty. God commands them to put a to put tassels there to uh, on the corners of, of their garment to uh, remind them of the law of God. And uh, by the time the first century comes, this, this had actually the custom had become more like fringe around the hem of the garment. You can actually see this still today on prayer shawls. It's kind of morphed to the prayer shawl. But what the Pharisees would do is, again, you know, we're spiritual people. So, you know, rather than fringe, you know, inch and a half long, I've got to have like eight inch fringe hanging down there. So wherever I go, swish, 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 you can see I'm a holy man. Got my big old box on my head and I got my, you know, stuff flapping in the breeze. I know God. And see, and God is pleased with me. Not only these outward corruptions, there's the inward corruption of the heart, verse 6. Right? They love the place of honor at the banquets. I mean, they thrive on this public acclaim, this reverence for their religious devotion, this calling attention. So they want to be seen. The first century, you know, they didn't eat the way we do. They would lay on their left side, kind of propped on their elbow, around this very low table. And uh, the table was horseshoe shaped, and the servants would come, bring food in, lay it on the table, and you'd be laying there on a pillow with your kind of feet out behind you. You know, this is the scene in the upper room when Jesus washes their feet. And uh, you reach in with your right hand and get the food, you know, you feed yourself. The place of honor was just to your left, because you could just reach over and, and give that person some food. And so they, whenever they were invited to a feast, Right? They want to be right there, right at the place of honor, the head of the table. Remember, Jesus addressed this. He said, you go to the foot of the table and you wait for somebody to ask you to come up. Oh, they don't want to wait. You know, first place, they're right there in front. They walk into church and in the front row they go. Throw their Bibles all over the place. So that everybody can see they're a holy people. It'll be interesting next week to see how many of you now move to the back row, right? It was all about looks. Chief seats in the synagogue, right? Verse 6, they want the chief seats in the synagogue. That is, they want the stuff up front. They want the seat at the front of the synagogue that's a little bit raised above the platform from everybody else, turned and facing the crowd, and it's close to, the, to where the scrolls of the law are kept. I want to sit next to the law of God because I love it. I wear it on my head. It's all about show. All about show. Furthering their reputation. These are people that God loves. You want to know what it means to be holy? You want to know what it means to be favored of God? Just look at these guys. You've got to be like them. They want respectful greetings, verse 7, in the marketplace. right? They want to be called by men, Rabbi, literally my great one. They kind of like that when they're walking, you know, through the marketplace. Everyone comes up to them and, and says, oh, Dr. So-and-so, Reverend, you know, this and that, my great one. Yeah, that's me. 
That's me. Constantly drawing attention to themselves. Pointing to their spiritual achievements. Flaunting their religion. And inwardly corrupting their souls. This is the religion of self-exaltation, beloved. That's what it looked like in the first century. In our day today, we got the same things. I don't have to make them clear to you because I'm pretty sure that you know what some of those are. Against that, Christ gives us the religion of self, or excuse me, of Christ exaltation. Jesus gives us the religion of Christ exaltation. Self exaltation, presumptuous, hypocritical, external. Christ exaltation, humble, submissive, contrite. What a contrast, huh? Begins here in verse 8. Verse 8. Do not be called my great one. For one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Grammatically here, by the way, in the Greek, this, um, this could not be more emphatically stated. The pronoun you, second person plural, is brought forward to the beginning of the sentence. You do not be called my great ones. Don't allow that to become part of your life. You are to be different. Why? Because you're all brothers. True spiritual leaders don't desire elevated titles. They don't want to be recognized. They don't crave the recognition of everybody else. They don't need everybody else to look up to them. They understand that in reality we're all brothers. We're all sinners saved by grace. We're any closer to God. One, you know, The elders of this church are any closer to God than anyone else who has trusted Jesus Christ for their salvation. We're brothers not arrived at some lofty position where we can look down on the peons. One is your teacher, he says. Verse 8. One is your teacher. It's fascinating, by the way. I mean, he has just bested the brightest minds of his day in open debate, right? Chapters 21 and 22 is all about Jesus silencing the religious leaders of his day. He has absolutely reduced them to silence. In fact, they are so stupefied, they can't even answer a simple question about the identity of the Messiah. The unstated point here is that he is calling them to him. One is your teacher. I am your teacher is what he is saying. He's drawing this contrast for them. Religion of Christ's exaltation is submissive too. Not only just humble, but submissive. Verses 9 and 10. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father. He was in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader. That is the Christ. Jesus is saying here, you know, because no one is spiritually superior to another person, that no one is your father in the spiritual sense, that they are your source of spiritual life. They are your mediator between you and God. The Bible says there is one mediator, right? Between man and God. The man, Christ Jesus. So he says here, do not call anyone on earth your father. That is, that they are your spiritual source of life and blessing. There's only one. It's me. He goes on in verse 10, do not be called leaders. For one is your leader. That is, Christ 
He is your instructor. He is your teacher. He is your leader. He is your master. That is what he's driving home here. Contrast to the false and earthly leaders of Judaism, those who are concerned about their own external appearances, he is saying there is, there is one who is gentle, humble of heart. One who can speak truthfully for God. One who has not presumptuously seated himself in the seat of Moses and, and claiming to speak for God. There is one who really does speak for God. It is me. It is me. There's only one authoritative teacher. It's Christ. They don't even know who Messiah is. Can't be them. Can't be them. It's me. I am the authoritative teacher. I am the one who sits the seat of Moses. If we're to adhere, beloved, to the religion of Christ's exaltation, then we have to submit to that truth. We have to submit to the truth that we recognize Jesus Christ for who He is. And we submit to Him as our spiritual Father, our authoritative Teacher. We abandoned all human pretenders and intermediaries. We must submit to Christ. And we must do it with a contrite heart. Verses 11 and 12. The religion of Christ's exaltation is contrite. What does contrite mean? It means humbled by our guilt. Humbled by our guilt and repentant for our sin. It means that we recognize who we really are as we stand before God. Contrition produces a servant's heart. It produces a servant's heart. True spirituality is not thirsty for outward recognition, for human praise and accolades. It does not revel in deeds of external piety. It is humble. It is often unobserved. Jesus Himself said in Mark 10, verse 45, right? That the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. The way up is the way down. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Verse 11. And whoever exalts himself shall be Humble. This is an unalterable spiritual principle of the universe. Learn this principle. This rule cannot be violated. Because God governs the universe and this is His rule. He is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. When we set ourselves up in self-exaltation, when we flaunt our spirituality, when we, when we revel in our attainments religiously, we will be abased. We will be brought low. We shall be humbled. Verse 12. This same expression, by the way, is used over in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, where there Jesus tells the parable. And actually, the parable was told just a little bit earlier than this. But he tells the parable. You remember of the Pharisee and the publican, the tax collector, and they both go into the temple? And the, and the tax collector is beating his chest and saying, you know, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the Pharisee looks at him and says, man, I'm sure glad I'm not like that guy. Right? Listen to all the things I do, God. He, he, um, it even says, he, you know, he basically prays to himself. 
And he, and he parades his spiritual achievements. And then Jesus ends that parable and he says, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. It's talking about contrition. A recognition of who we really are before God. That is the source of our spiritual exaltation. Apostle Paul said in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Jesus entered the city on Sunday. He looked around the temple and He left again, the text tells us. He comes back on Monday and He cleanses the temple. He drives out the money changers who are ripping the people off. He overturns the tables of those selling the sacrifices who are ripping the people off. We're told over in, um, in Mark's Gospel that he prohibits anyone from, from cutting through the temple area. It, it was a nice, quick, convenient shortcut you know, to get from one side of the city to the other. So people would just carry their, you know, they'd do their business and cut back and forth across the temple area. He prohibits that as well. For two days, he possesses the temple mount as his rightful throne. He stops all of the, the shenanigans that have been going on in that area. And while that is happening, he is besting the brightest and most devoted minds of Judaism of his day. He is continually demonstrating the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. He is continually showing the Sadducees that they don't understand the Word of God and they don't believe it anyway. He silences everyone. And he teaches that to, to follow the Messiah whom he claims to be must be a life of humility and suffering and service. Then he leaves the temple on Tuesday afternoon. He leaves the temple, he goes back to Bethany. We have what I believe is a silent Wednesday when you put together the Passion Week, the Scriptures don't tell us what happened on Wednesday. It's just quiet. It's quiet. The people have heard. The people have seen. He sends them home to think about it. All day Wednesday and into Thursday, you can imagine they're about their business, right? Going about their affairs, washing clothes, going to the marketplace, the men conducting Whatever business needs to be conducted, many pilgrims are in the city at this time preparing for the Passover. A lot of buzz, a lot of chatter, a lot of over-dinner conversation. What do you think about what he said? See, he drove them to a decision point. What he drove them to was a, a point of decision that says it's either me or the Pharisees. You will follow either me or the Pharisees. You will either follow the religion of self-exaltation or you will follow the religion of Christ-exaltation. It cannot and it will not be both. By Friday morning, the multitude had made up their mind. They had made up their mind, right? The leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees had done its deadly work. And there in the wee hours, the crowd gathered. Pilate says, we have this one? Well, you have this convicted robber, murderer, thief. 
Behold your king, Israel. The people call out and say, we don't have a king except Caesar. That despised Roman emperor. Jesus puts you and I this morning at a similar crossroad. He has placed you here at a similar crossroad. Which religion will you choose? Let's pray. Our Father, may You drive Your Word deep into our hearts. Use it, our Father, to pry open the dark places, the secret spots that we have reserved only to ourselves. Expose them to the light of Your Word. Search our hearts, O God. Draw us to You. Grant us faith to believe. Help us to put off the self-exaltation that so easily entangles every single one of us. Humble our hearts. Make us contrite of spirit. Give us a vision of the resurrected Jesus Christ, not in in some supernatural sense that we see an actual person, but reveal to us, Father, the truth of who He really is. What He's done. Give us hearts to believe and faith to cling to that One. Amen.